Be Christ's Church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke Podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. chapter 4 is where we find ourselves today. We continue in our series through the book of Acts, and I think uh, Acts has for us a, a timely word in light of much of what is going on in the life of our church. So as you make your way to Acts 4, beginning in verse 23, I, I want to say to you uh, that I'm excited to be with you in this place. I, I'm excited for our future together I'm excited for the opportunity to gather as one church, worshiping the risen Lord Jesus Christ who sets us free. Uh, we are here for several reasons. First, we're, we're here in obedience to God, who has called us to be united as a people for His glory. Second, uh, we've got more distance between the rows here than we have over in the sanctuary, which hopefully helps us from a, a COVID perspective. And finally, we're here because we want to grow. There are some empty seats, not as many as I expected this morning, uh, but there are some empty seats, and we have room to expand backwards and to make yet more room. And, and every empty chair in this room is, to me, it's a prayer. It, it represents a prayer of my heart, and I, and I believe your heart, that God would fill these remaining seats, that He would fill them with people who uh, need to hear the gospel, who would repent and believe and call upon the name of the Lord as we've seen happening in the book of Acts, that we would see that happen in our midst through our church, that we would be a, a church in Roanoke that looks like Roanoke for the good of Roanoke and the glory of God, that red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor and in between that they would come to saving faith in Christ because of the witness and the testimony and the oneness that is exhibited through North Roanoke Baptist Church. Are you in agreement with that? It's what we see happening in Acts. By, by the time we get to verse 23 in chapter 4, the church has grown from around 120 initial believers to around 3,120 at Pentecost to now 5,000 or perhaps even 8,000 in number as thousands trust Christ when Peter gives a sermon explaining the power behind the healing of the lame man. It wasn't the apostles who healed him, it was Jesus. It was in Jesus' power, Jesus' name, Jesus' authority that the man was healed. Well, I thought Jesus was crucified. I thought we took care of Jesus. No, you see, crucifixion didn't cancel Jesus. Crucifixion was just the way that he was able to then conquer death on the third day. You see, God raised him from the dead. He is reigning and he is ruling and he is reaching people through his church, through his disciples. People are listening. They're hearing the gospel and receiving everlasting life. And that means some people aren't very happy about it. As we saw in our last sermon from Acts, the temple leadership is not happy. They arrest Peter and John. They put them on trial, but they can't figure out what to, what to do with them. And when, when the gospel goes forward in power, when God moves, some people get upset. Because faulty 
assumptions and personal idols are revealed. Man-made traditions are upended to make way for the all-encompassing glory and greatness of King Jesus invading our lives, getting down to the root of our lives, changing us as He gives us Himself as our satisfaction, our salvation, and our joy. It is only Jesus who truly satisfies the longing of a human heart. And this tension that we see playing out in Acts that that Jesus is opposed by some, but he's winning many, is something that now the new church, these new disciples, these new followers of King Jesus have to deal with personally because Peter and John, two of their leaders, have been arrested. They've been threatened personally. Personal saving faith in Christ has now become personally costly to them. And the question that faces the church, the church in Acts, and the church today is this. How will we respond to the costliness of following King Jesus? How will we we respond to a culture that is opposed to those who follow Christ as King? Would you hear with me the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 23 of chapter 4, and we'll continue down through verse 37. The word of the Lord says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord. We just sang about it. Death was arrested. How he was raised from the grave by the, excuse me, testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, verse 33, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. God, help us 
Help us, I pray, by way of the indwelling and the filling of your Spirit, even now, God, to understand, to comprehend, to internalize this text of Scripture. God, may, may the words on this page be alive in our hearts, and may we depart changed people who look more like Jesus and less like ourselves. For the glory of Christ, we ask it, and in his name we pray it. Amen. I want to show you three things from this text this morning, and the first thing I want to show you is from verses 23 to verse 28, and it's this. When, when opposition comes, and I don't know if you realize this, but we're in a world of opposition. The world is opposed to Christ. Uh, it ebbs and flows in its intensity, it seems, but the world is opposed to, to Christ. When, when we face opposition, we must rest in God, who is sovereign. We must rest in God, who is sovereign. In verse 23, Peter and John are released. They return to their friends, or literally to their own, and they report on what the temple leaders had said to them. After they report about the, the threats that they had received, in verse 24, these Jesus people, do you see it? They lifted their voices, but actually in the Greek, it's one, vo it's one voice. They, plural, lifted their voice, singular. With one voice, the people of God responded to the adversity. How? With great praise. Now, now, you might wonder how all these Christians spoke simultaneously with one voice. Perhaps it's a, another miracle in Acts, but if it was a miracle, then Luke probably would have told us that. It, it's more likely that there's someone leading the entire congregation in this prayer of praise together. No matter whether it was a miracle or there was a, a leader guiding this prayer, here's what we see. The, the church is doing theology together in response to the adversity they face. Have you noticed yet that togetherness is a big deal in the book of Acts? We saw it in chapter 114. All these together or with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. We see it in chapter 2, verse 46. They were attending the temple, how? Together and breaking bread in their homes. We were saved by Christ individually to be brought into community with other Christians. You can't do this. You were not made to do this alone. The church in Acts is marked by a radical togetherness in Christ. And being with Christ and for Christ has brought opposition to the people of Christ. So what do they do? Together they lift their singular voice and address God as sovereign Lord. Do you see that in verse 24? The word sovereign emphasizes God's authority over all things. The dictionary definition of sovereign is this. The quality or state of having supreme power or authority. There's nothing that God can't do that doesn't contradict his character. Another dictionary definition of sovereignty is this, to be the supreme and independent power or authority in government. That word independent power is important. As sovereign, God is independent. He depends upon no one else for his being or his existence. He just is. What is his name in Exodus? I am that I 
am. God is the only uncreated being in the universe. All else that is, is contingent and dependent upon the sovereign over all, the ruler, the sovereign Lord God. And his territory, where, where, does, where is his territory? It's everywhere because he made it all. As sovereign, he's sovereign over all because he made it all, which is what they naturally flow into in verse 24. Do you see that? He is the maker of heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. He's sovereign over it all because he made it all. So, how does the church begin to respond to the arrest and threats of their leadership? They, they don't praise Peter and John. Hey, Peter and John, you guys are awesome. You were so bold and brave. That's not what they do. Neither, neither do they suggest, oh, no, the temple leaders are upset. I guess we'll just throw in the towel and forget everything, go home, and, you know, they threatened us, so we'll just go back to the temple and do the whole temple thing and ignore Jesus. You can't ignore Jesus because he's ruling and reigning in righteousness, and his spirit has come, and he's changed us from the inside out. So what do they do? In the face of adversity, in the face of opposition, they don't praise Peter and John. They don't abandon the mission. Instead, they praise God. What are we going to do when adversity strikes? We're just going to praise God. What are we going to do when when cancer comes? We're going to praise God. What are we going to do when things happen that don't make sense? We're going to praise God as, as sovereign. The church is not debating God's sovereignty. They are delighting in it. They are not fearing a sovereign God. They are finding rest in Him. He's in control. He is overall, and He sent His Son. And then in verses 25 through 28, their, their prayer moves from praise for God's sovereignty over creation to praise for His sovereignty in history. Did you know that God is not the God of the deists? He didn't just make it all and then ignore it all. He made it all, and then he's intimately involved in human history, pointing all of human history to the glory of his Son. He is triune, and the Father's plan from eternity past has been for his Son to receive the glory and honor he is due from people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. And that hope is expressed very clearly in Psalm 2. And that's the psalm that the church quotes in their prayer of praise. It is a psalm that the church confesses in verse 25 is from God. In other words, God is the author of Psalm 2, which came through the mouth of their father David, who spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So some of you who aren't in college yet, And one day, if you go to college, which by the way, if you don't go to college, that's fine too. Vocational training is a great thing to do. You can put in an HVAC. This isn't any connection to my sermon. Sorry for the rabbit. But you can work on a car or a motorcycle or an HVAC, and you're no less valuable than somebody who's got a PhD. You're no less valuable to God. If if God has called you to work with your hands uh, and your heart, in doing something that's vocational, then go do it for the glory of God. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you end up going to a secular university, you're going to find somebody who's going to tell you, oh, the church didn't believe that the Bible was the Word of God, that it was the perfectly inspired Word of God. And you know what? That's a lie. 
Of course they did. It's right here in verse 25. They said God wrote it through the mouth of David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's right there in verse 25. And again and again and again in the New Testament, the the church believed that the Old Testament was the authoritative, infallible, perfect guide pointing us to the glory of King Jesus. Anyway, sorry for that. But it's important. From the beginning... The church understood the Old Testament was about God's Son. And Psalm 2 tells us, as Peterson puts it, the destiny of the nations is determined by the response to the God of Israel and His Son, the one who is appointed to possess and rule all nations. But not everyone receives the Son. Even the temple leaders are rejecting Him. In the first two verses of Psalm 2, now quoted in verses 25 and 26, we learn that the Gentiles rage against the Son. This word rage is a term that is used of unbreakable spirited animals. You think about a a horse that refused to be broken, that refused to be trainable, that won't come under the authority of its trainer. That's the word that is used to describe the nations as they reject King Jesus. They're unbreakable, unyielding in their spirit. You've met people like this. They refuse to be broken. They refuse to have their heart broken over their sin and to be totally dominated by the authority and the glory of Christ and yielded to Him. And instead of yielding to the Son, they rage against Him. We learn that kings and rulers will gather against the Lord and His anointed, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God and God's God the Son are going to be opposed, and yet the opposition will fail. The reason we know that it's going to fail is because the way David asked the questions, why did they rage? And why did the people's plot, do you see the next two words, in vain. In other words, there's coming a day when rejecting Jesus is going to look really foolish. There's coming a day when people will go, why in the world did I not embrace Christ? Why in the world did I not surrender to him? But for now, until Christ comes, there will be some who rage against him. There will be some who vainly plot against him. And in this prayer of praise, the church recognizes that that day predicted by David has now come. Jesus has been opposed, and he has won. That's why verse 27 begins with the word truly. Do you see that word? Truly or indeed. In other words, what Psalm 2 predicted has been fulfilled by the conspiracy to crucify Christ and his subsequent crucifixion. World leaders, Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles have conspired against Jesus. And here's the big surprise. The people's who rage against Jesus aren't just the peoples of the world, but also the peoples of Israel. Do you see that right there? It's the peoples of Israel who came together conspiring with Herod and Pilate, coming together and performing the crucifixion of Jesus, God's holy servant, the only one, the righteous one, set apart from eternity past to rule as God's representative on earth. But look at verse 28. Even the death of God's Son didn't surprise God. Did you catch that? The death of God's Son was no surprise to God. It it was all according to what His hand, do you see that in verse 28? His hand signifies His power and what His plan 
had predestined to take place. His plan signifies his will and his wisdom. So all that God is was not surprised by what happened to Jesus. This word predestined means to predetermine or to mark out beforehand. How sovereign is God? He can carry out his purposes even through people who oppose him. The crucifixion of Jesus didn't surprise him. The church sees that the opposition they are now facing is a continuation of the opposition to Jesus in the world. Those who oppose the church are opposed to Jesus. But God, excuse me, but just as God was sovereign in the crucifixion of Jesus, he is now sovereign even as the church faces persecution. Did you know nothing surprises the Lord? Did you know COVID didn't surprise God? He, he was totally unsurprised by COVID. Now, the rest of us, this is pretty, pretty shocking. And, and we've been asking, you know, what, what can we learn? But it, what we do know is that God wasn't surprised. And what we do know is that even the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. And what we do know is that nothing can steal the victory of Jesus and of those who belong to him. Because if the crucifixion couldn't cancel Christ, then surely COVID cannot. So the church does not pray for the absence of trouble. Do you see that? They don't pray for all their fears and troubles to go away. Instead, they offer praise to a sovereign God that they know they can trust in everything because he raised Jesus from the dead. So everything else is nothing compared to what God's already accomplished for us in Christ. What is needed for, by the church and for the church is not a problem-free existence. What they need is power for representing Jesus in spite of the problems they face. And we know this because in verse 29 and 30 and into 31, they don't pray for the persecution to, to disappear. What do they pray for in 29 and 30? They, they pray for boldness, which shows us that we also must pray for boldness to speak God's word and leave the results in God's hands. If the church would live in verse 29 and 30, I wonder what God might do. We pray for boldness and leave the results up to God. In verse 29, the church makes two requests. Do you see them? First, they ask God to look upon, to be mindful of the threats that Peter and John have faced. Here, here's what they're saying. God, you take care of it however you see fit. They don't fret. They begin by leaving and entrusting their lives into God's hands, confident that he can deal with the opposition as he deems best. In other words, God, you do with the, oppo the opposition whatever you want to do with the opposition. They're in your hands. It's not, it's not in my control. I'm just going to keep sharing the gospel, living the gospel, and leave the results to you. Pretty good attitude. And then what do they say? Look at their second request. God, grant us boldness. To speak your word, meaning the gospel. The word grant here means to bestow as a gift or a blessing. Can, can I ask us something? Honestly, soul searching. If I were to ask you before this sermon, hey, name the top five blessings you want to receive from God in 2022. What would be on your list? Again, before we read this passage. But you see, the Bible says 
one of the blessings that God wants to give his church. Indeed, I would argue one of the supreme blessings that he wants to give you if you're a follower of Christ is boldness. Is that what we ask for when it's hard to follow Jesus? Or, or maybe it's just the pastor. Maybe I need to point all the fingers at myself. Man, I, God, just get me out of this jam. Make life easier for me. Take care of my circumstances. But what does the church pray right here? Filled with the Holy Spirit previously, and now they're like, we need more boldness because the opposition's getting harder. So just give us some boldness, God, to keep talking about Jesus. Wow. You notice they don't just ask for a little bit of boldness? How much, how much boldness do they want? Somebody tell me. All boldness. Not, not safety. God, give us some safety this morning. God, give us some security this morning. God, give us some prosperity this morning. No, God, give us boldness. Not a little bit of boldness. Not some boldness. God, give us all boldness to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter what they say about us, no matter what they might do to us, give us some boldness. Woo! I love that. The early church was not sitting around strategizing about how to make the gospel less costly or less offensive. Are you, are, is this on? Are you all hearing me? Because there's a lot of churches today, and, and I've been guilty of it sometimes too. Well, you know, Jesus... Is, is a nice person, and you really should trust him because he's really nice and it's good. No, 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 listen, sin is real, and it's deadly, and it's an offense to a holy God. The, the church wasn't trying to prove to the world how much like the world they could be. They were set apart for the glory of the king, and they were exalting the king no matter what it costs them. They understood they were in a battle for the glory of the son that David had told them would happen in Psalm 2 and that they had been entrusted with the weapon of the glorious and eternal gospel of Christ and what they needed when adversity came and what they desired when adversity came was all boldness to use the gospel that God had entrusted to them. For far too long, pulpits have been apologizing for the truth of the gospel rather than boldly proclaiming it. We, we need all boldness back in the church. We don't need to apologize for the truth that sin is offensive to a holy God, that the just penalty for sin against God is death, and that there is one way to be reconciled to this holy God, and it is through the precious blood of Jesus who conquered the grave on the third day to give you life so that you could live like even if you die, you're not going to die. That's what Jesus did. We live in a culture where boldness is, is often represented as brashness. We live in a culture where being direct is often called being mean. But church, when we realize what is at stake, when we see the need, we, when we realize what is at stake, we see the need for God-given boldness. And we, and we don't just need boldness out there in the world. We also need it in here among our gospel friends. Every Christian needs a gospel-grounded friend who has permission to boldly speak the gospel to him or to her directly into their lives. They need to be able to know you and to see you and to challenge you out of the truths of the gospel. When you're living in self-pity, when you're living in self-doubt, you need a friend or friends or a 3D group. You need somebody who will say, this is what the gospel says about your situation. 
May, may God visit North Roanoke with all boldness to speak his word to one another and to the watching world that so desperately needs to receive King Jesus. And as we do this, may we trust God to do what only God can do to stretch out. Do you see it in verse 30? What is our responsibility? To depend upon the Spirit to embolden us to speak the gospel. What is God's responsibility? He will stretch out His hand to heal people broken by sin. In the early church and primarily through the apostles, God also would work signs and wonders to prove that the hope of the end times restoration of all things had come in Jesus. So here's the point. We need to speak the gospel to broken lives and broken homes and broken families. And then what do we do? We rely on the sovereign God to do the rest. We let God perform the greatest miracle of all, opening spiritually blind eyes, opening spiritually deaf ears, transforming sin-deadened hearts into hearts that beat for Jesus and come to have a full share in the promises yet to be revealed when King Jesus returns. What we need, North Roanoke Baptist Church, more than a new worship center. And don't get me wrong, I would love that. Setting up chairs, not fun. But you know what? Every single one of you is worth it. Every single one of you is worth it. I will do it until I die. I will do it as long as my body gives me health and strength because every single one of you is worth it and every single person out there who's not here that God wants to bring here to hear the gospel is worth it but don't get me wrong I'd love to have a sanctuary with some permanent chairs that's bigger and has a nice round spread and we can get five to seven to eight hundred people in there because I think we can reach that many people we got a great location we got a great family we got a great worship team and tech team there's no reason that God can't pour out abundant, abundant blessing in this valley through this people that gathers at this place. There's no reason. But you know what we need more than that worship center? You know what we need more than that updated preschool, which we desperately need? You know what you need more than keeping your New Year's resolutions? We need a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit in our lives to speak the word of God with all boldness. In our workplaces, around the Thanksgiving table and the Easter lunch table and whenever the next time is, you're going to see that long lost family member who rejects the gospel and they're hardened to the gospel and you don't know when you're ever going to speak. Just Lean on Jesus to open up your mouth to speak and love the glorious truth, glorious truths of the gospel. We, we need boldness to speak the gospel to ourselves, to one another, to a lost and dying world more than we need anything else. Spirit of the living God, would you give us such boldness in our church, in our women's ministry? Would you make us more passionate to speak the gospel into one another's lives than to have nice painting events Painting is great, by the way, but let's not just paint, let's paint the gospel on one another's hearts. In our men's ministry, that's going to be reconstituted in 2022, can men, rather than just talking about how the Virginia Tech Hokies are the greatest football program that never win a national championship, true statement, um, can we talk about more important things? 
Can we talk about how the gospel impacts our lives, how it brings us together, even though we're very different? In our 3D groups, can we get down to the nitty-gritty of one another's lives and not just pray for medical concerns? Those are not, not important to God, by the way. They're very important to God. But you know what else is important to God? Your spiritual walk with Christ. Can we pray for our lost neighbor that we're praying for and bring our whole 3D group in on that? And then when Frank, Tom, Harry, Julie walks into the class and she trusts Christ, can we celebrate together what God has done because he gave us boldness to speak the gospel in here and then it went out there and look what God did. You know, there's a lot of prayers that I pray that I don't know if God's going to answer them or not. I don't know, let me correct that. I don't know if he's going to answer them the way I want him to answer them or not. But what if in 2022 we started praying prayers that we knew he was going to answer yes? Did you know you can do that? Did you know that you can pray prayers that you know God is going to answer in the affirmative? What if 2022 we just said we're going to devote our prayer life to praying prayers that God's going to answer yes? That'd be awesome. You say, Daniel, I, I don't know, get what you're saying. First John, who wrote, John was one of those who was arrested, right? Later, he's writing First John. What does he tell us in First John 5, 14 and 15? This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. What if we just said, in 2022, I'm going to pray God's will as expressed in his word. And we know that God's will is for us to be bold with the gospel, don't we? Anybody have a doubt about that? Look at verse 31. What are the results of this prayer? Boom, the place is shaken. You want God to move in your life? You want God to move in this church? You want God to shake things up? Where does God move? Where does God shake things up? When his people pray for boldness to speak the gospel, God moves and things get shaken. Secondly, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You can't be bold with the gospel without the Holy Spirit. This is not about waking up in the morning and flexing your muscles and going, Woo, I'm bold today. No. God has to make you bold. God has to grant you the liberty to open your mouth in front of that person that you are fearful might reject the invitation to receive Christ. He's got to give you the the boldness and the liberty to speak. And, And thirdly, what did they do when they were filled? They, they didn't waste the filling of the Spirit. They did what they were supposed to do. They went on speaking the gospel regardless of the threats that they faced. And we know that they were filled to speak the gospel because what happens in chapter 8? I know we're not there yet, but in chapter 8, guess what happens? The church gets persecuted and the apostles stay behind in Jerusalem and the rest of the church is scattered and on the run. And how does the church end up popping up in the first century all over the place, because these spirit-empowered believers went with boldness, proclaiming the gospel of God all over the place. The threats only serve to strengthen their understanding of the importance of the mission. And as we see in verses 32 through 37, the threats also clarified the importance of the church family. Verses 32 through 37, and I'll 
be as brief as I can be, but what we see in verses 32 through 37 is this. We must embrace our oneness in Christ who compels us to go all in for one another. You see the response of the church to the threats? First, God, you're sovereign, you're in control, you have ordained that your son will win, we're with your son and we trust you. Second, we need boldness to keep talking about your son. And then third, in verse 32 through 37, we see something crazy going on. These people become radically generous with one another. In verse 32, we see that the full number of those who believe, that is the entire Jerusalem church, were of one heart and one soul. Literally, the text says this, the heart and soul of the number who believed were united. Is there anybody you're not united with this morning in the fellowship of God? Get united. Get you, do whatever you got to do, whatever you got to repent of, whatever you got to heal, whatever you got to forgive for the glory of Christ. Because when we're all focused on the glory of the Son and the gospel of God, God unites people. Their, their unity was shown by what we read next. Do you see it? No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Their spiritual unity and their shared eternity as equal participants in the gospel led them to have a concern for their church, a concern that transcended all other earthly concerns. Their unity in the gospel produced a bond so great that it changed their relationship with their possessions. They owned their possessions, and yet they had everything in common. Now, how do you have everything in common and own it at the same time? Do you see that? It was their belongings, but they had it in common. In other words, whenever there's a need, I'm going to meet it. It doesn't mean they became a socialist commune. It means that the assets of individual members were available to support the church whenever the need arose. It means that the church came before vacation. It means that the church came before kids' sports. It means that the church came before college funds. It means that the church came before early retirement. A community that is captivated by the gospel and opposed by the world and confident of eternity is compelled to support the family of God in profoundly generous ways because it is the family of God that God uses to make an eternal difference and it is the family of God that will matter and endure for all eternity. There's a lot of stuff that we invest our money in that's not going to make a hill of beans a difference in eternity, but what we invest for the gospel and for one another certainly will. What is interesting, to me anyway, is that nobody had to tell them to do this. We don't read about a, a five-sermon series on being generous in Acts, do we? They just felt it. They, they saw the threats. They'd been changed on the inside. They'd been brought together by the blood of Christ as a family that was greater than biological family. Let me ask you, what wouldn't you give up for your son or your daughter? If I find out my, my son, God forbid, has cancer, every dollar I have is his. What about the church? When are we going to see the local church like that? When, when one part, when Paul tells us when one member hurts, the whole body aches and responds. There was no, there was no series on stewardship. So what did motivate their giving? 
What did motivate this radical generosity? Look at verse 33. The apostles kept on preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Christ is raised and I have all eternity with him, then that next dollar doesn't matter nearly as much as what Jesus can do with it. It was in the hearing of the victory through Jesus that they no longer desired to live for themselves. It was in hearing the gospel that they understood what Paul says, We are not our own, for we were bought with a price. And what was the price? It was the blood of Jesus. The gospel was changing them as they, they heard the gospel. Verse 33 says, Great grace was upon them all. Do you see that in verse 33? And what is the evidence, what is the proof that grace was upon them all? It wasn't that they ran around saying, grace, grace, God's grace. How did they know that God's grace was on them? Look at verse 34. There was none needy among them. Everything, every need that the church had was taken care of. Once more, Luke is showing us that the community of Jesus' followers is true Israel. They're fulfilling the promise of Deuteronomy 15.4, there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In verse 36 and 37, Luke introduces us to to Barnabas, the son of encouragement, and I'm not going to take too much time with him today, but he's, he's introduced now as a generous giver, and we'll see him later as a powerful missionary. Barnabas is compelled by the Spirit to lay down his earthly treasure at the apostles' feet for the sake of the gospel. He went and sold some property, and what did he do with the proceeds of the property? He said, I'm going to go to the budget committee, and I'm going to list 17 priorities that I'm personally interested in, and I'm going to designate my gift. Is that what he did? Oh, that's not what he did. What did he do? He sold it, and he laid it down at Jesus' feet. This is, this is not a tithe, by the way. He was a Levite. He would have been familiar with tithing. This is, this is more than a tithe. This is a gift that cut into his long-term principal value. It was like Mary. You remember Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with the costly flask of oil? And she broke it, devaluing everything. Well, not devaluing it because Christ is worth everything. But she no longer had that asset. And and similarly, Barnabas gave up his asset. He gave up the value of the asset. He gave up all future income from the asset. Why? For the sake of Jesus. I want to say something nutso this morning. I believe with all my heart that if God would grant us all gospel boldness in speaking, all boldness in speaking the gospel, if He would give us all boldness, And if he would give us oneness in that gospel that leads us to hold our things very loosely as we see in this text, I believe that all that is in God's heart for us to do can be done very quickly. Because we're going to grow as the gospel goes out, and we're going to give as we love Jesus and Jesus' people more than we love our own lives. People who are graciously changed by the gospel, are given great grace to love the church generously. How do you know if you've experienced the the grace of God? He's given you a radical love for the people of God. You will search the New Testament in vain for a faithful Christian 
who does not love his local church. When the gospel is precious to us, the church will be precious to us. And it will be reflected in how we view our things. Church, we can say that we love Jesus. We can say that we love the church. We can say that we are patient and kind and long-suffering and forbearing with one another, but those things are largely inward and invisible, but our giving is not. And what we give and how we view our stuff, Jesus says, says much about our hearts. So how are we doing? Are we captivated by the gospel? Are we leaning on the Spirit for boldness to proclaim the gospel and longing for still more throughout the Roanoke Valley to hear and have a people and a place to gather and grow and delight in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? And do we have open and generous hearts that have been shaped by the gospel itself? Would you pray with me? King Jesus, would you grant us all boldness and grace to speak of our King, to live for our King, and to give to our King, who has given far more than we could ever give in return. God, I I know there's people in this room that they've identified that person that that they need boldness to share the gospel with. Maybe an extended family member, maybe a sister, brother, cousin, a mom, or a dad, and God, their, their time is growing short with every passing day. They're, they're one step closer to eternity. And, and there's someone in this room that knows they need to be bold. God, would you give them boldness? Would you give them the liberty to ask for boldness? And God, there's others in this room. They, they want community. They want a place to love. God, God, would they find that here at North Roanoke? Would they find that this is a people and a place where they will be embraced and challenged and they will hear the gospel spoken into their lives and they will be welcomed to do the same for us. God, I I pray. I pray for us. I pray that you would move among us like you moved among the church in Acts, that you would shake us up for your glory. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.